0: Finding your passion is such an intimidating demand. Passion is just such a strong word, and I like the idea of curiosity because everyone has curiosities, and it's such a simple, natural feeling. That's Marina Douay, and this is
1: the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast where I invite my favorite humans, the awesome, the up to something, and the extraordinary to come and share their story. I hope that you'll be left entertained, inspired, and moved to take action towards living your most powerful life. Marina is a writer and a journalist. She's written for publications such as LA Weekly, SF Weekly, OC Weekly, pretty much every weekly, Mag, Huffington Post, and Uproxx. Her partner, Miles, is a photographer, and for the past couple of years, They've had the privilege of traveling the world, covering music festivals as a team. On this episode, we talk about how journalism is changing, how to find your voice, and what it looks like to make the hard choices and follow your own unique path. All that coming up, but first.
2: I like big books and I can can not lie. (laughs) What do you want them to do, Karen?
1: I want them to go and visit thepowerfulladies.com, go -hmm. to tools, click read, and see all the awesome books that I love, our guests love you click on that picture, you can buy them and guess what, every time you buy a book there you help support powerful ladies what? I know what? listen guys if you love what we're doing support us, buy some books on powerful ladies do it today support yourself
2: support yourself and your brain and buy some books I should know,
1: I don't read I should read And now Jordan is fired from The Powerful Ladies (laughs) because this is a literacy-promoting organization, and we can't have her spreading that nonsense. I'm going to (laughs) read. Welcome to The Powerful Ladies Podcast. Thanks. Um, We start by asking our guests to introduce themselves and what they're up to. Okay.
0: Okay. Uh, my name's Marina Dewey, and I am a freelance journalist, writer. I'm currently a copy editor and content producer, and I'm actually also working on my first book.
1: And we are going to start this podcast unlike we have any before, because we're going to make it into a party. So would you do the honors and open this champagne? <sighs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> ha
2: Good job.
0: Assuming everyone wants a cup. Yeah. Yes, please.
1: So, while you're um, serving bubbly, um, you know, we always kind of start by asking our guests to talk about how they grew up and where. So, kind of do the breakdown of like zero to 18, zero to 20. Okay. So nice, guys. All right,
2: cheers. Cheers. Welcome to ladies. Palace, cheers. I can't reach on the caps, but this is what it sounds like.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: You got the bubble. Small. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. Um, so, I grew up in Salinas, California, which is a little farm town kind of by Monterey and Santa Cruz, Steinbeck country, if you will. Uh, my mom is from the Philippines, and my dad is from Germany, so I'm a first-generation American. Uh, I spoke German first, before English, actually, which, you know, we've sprackened yes. before. Ein bisschen, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I've lost a lot of it, though, unfortunately. ish out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you don't use it, you lose it. And then uh, my both my parents were musicians, so I grew up playing the piano basically before I could talk, uh, playing guitar, a little bit of French horn, singing ballet eventually. Uh, I went to Selena's High School, where I was a nerd and had my nose in the books pretty much the entire time. Uh, eventually graduated and moved as soon as I turned 18 out of Salinas because Salinas is kind of a tough place and not a lot of room for growth there. So I moved to Southern California and went to UC Irvine Mm -hmm. and studied film and media. And actually, oddly, I originally went to UC Irvine because they had the exact uh, journalism major that I wanted. And then the first quarter in, I... Thought it was so boring, and I was like, "I don't want to do this anymore." I think I'm gonna swap. So I went to film instead because I like watching movies. Mm-hmm. But then graduated and became a journalist anyway. So <laughs> I'm not really sure. Did but, you
1: know you wanted to be a journalist
0: like early on? Like when did you discover that? Um, I wanted to be a writer. Actually, like the first time I felt that I had something with writing, oddly, was in third grade. I had written this horror story, like this really creepy story. (laughs) And my teacher actually loved it so much she had me read it in front of the school and would always, a lot of my teachers would just always tell my parents, like, she's actually really good at writing. She's a natural. You should like foster that. Mm -hmm. My dad was a writer too. He um, wrote children's books. And then I saw Almost Famous. (laughs) Yeah. And that totally blew my mind and made me want to write for Rolling Stone and be a music journalist. And that kind of, Idealized concept of music writing eventually came true in its own right, a little yeah. more modern version. And I eventually started doing festival writing and covering for LA Weekly and SF Weekly, OC Weekly, Huffington Post, and a few other small ones, Mix Mag, DJ Mag. And then my. Almost Famous Dreams essentially came true. I mean, I was going to festivals for free. I was being flown out to places like Israel and Jamaica to go to these festivals and cover. It was still kind of a lot of investment on my end. It wasn't like a super free ride, and journalism isn't the most lucrative of endeavors. But um, the experiences I had, for sure, are priceless, and I wouldn't trade any of that for money. And you have a really great partner, yes
1: because um your boyfriend happens to be an amazing photographer so you go together get to have this great experience together and he takes amazing pictures you get to write about it and then you get to you know share that together with the world
0: yeah it's cool because we're kind of co-creating something and it's also nice because we're kind of in the same field but in our own respective kind of branches of it so there's not really any kind of competitiveness there you know if we were both writers or both photographers i feel like that might get yeah hard because it's a super competitive field mm-hmm. and uh it's very complimentary as it is right now yeah exactly mm-hmm. and i mean it would be hard because if we were both writers what if one of us got pitched or pitched a story for a publication and the other one didn't and so it's easier because we kind of come as a package deal and Yeah, that's kind of how we sell ourselves to when we're pitching out as a, like a duo how, how did that idea first come up? So it's funny because Miles' mom, my boyfriend's name is Miles, uh, his mom is a professional photographer. She does like portrait and also kind of fine art photography. Mm-hmm. So he's been assisting her on shoots his whole life. And photography has been like part of his childhood. But he never really ever thought he was going to pursue it. He ended up actually finding it totally on his own. And it actually started because we started going to festivals and I would get a plus one and he was my plus one. And so he kind of felt like he should contribute somehow. He's like, if I'm going to be going to these things, I feel like I should do something. I don't know. Maybe Mm -hmm. I could take. I was like, photos would be cool because a lot of the time I have to source them from other photographers or just like find them online. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the time. I mean, we're together the whole time, so it perfectly matches my story Yep. because he's seeing everything that I'm writing about. So, mm-hmm. like, there would be, for example, a set that I would write about, and I wouldn't have photos for that particular set. But every time, I can, like, direct him, be like, oh, can you make sure that you get a photo of this particular set or that art installation or those freaking weirdos over there or, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so it works out in that way. And it kind of just started off as – just uh, another way to get another media pass, essentially without mm-hmm. uh, being a mooch, I guess. yeah, uh, I mean, I didn't care, but I think it was more for him to feel like he was contributing and not just being a plus one forever. Well, and his pictures are amazing, yeah, and so, and it's been amazing to see his growth and mm-hmm. to see how much he's his just eye has changed and evolved, and even his editing style and his gear, of course. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
1: there have been people that I now follow on social media. Because he captured this moment of them uh, and posted it, and I was like, "Who is that? They look awesome!" And suddenly, I'm down this rabbit hole of <laughs> you know the internet and making all these new friends just because of what he a moment he captured. That's awesome. So yeah, he's I, I gonna think, love hearing that. <laughs> no, it's true, and and you know I've always been a fan of uh, partners and couples who kind of take on this entrepreneurial business together. So to see friends of mine that are doing that and doing such amazing work, it's like, yes! Like, how how can we, you know, let more people know how, I think naturally, um, the two of you capture what you see and then do it together. Definitely. Yeah.
0: That's the goal. Yeah. We're just almost famousing around.
1: And honestly, I think that's what a lot of people's dreams would be. Like, you, you look at what you guys get to do and where you get to go and, you're covering, like, really awesome parties. Yeah. And you're like, huh, like, that can be a job. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> how, how do yep. we get that job? <laughs> Definitely. Unfortunately, though, the I feel like Dream has kind of faded a bit because the journalism industry has, like, substantially dipped. And I feel, I mean, obviously there's going to be, music journalism has its own necessity. You know, everyone yeah. can't be writing negative shit. Oh, can I curse on here? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Not everyone can be writing negative shit, and there has to be some kind of positive lightness out there in the journalism world. And so I understand that it's still a necessity, but on the one hand, it's also not exactly there's not as much of a need for a music journalist or an article about a music fest, some random music festival in Mexico or something. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot harder now. I used to, I mean, there was two years where I fully sustained myself on music journalism and I was freelancing and writing and I was not rich, but I was making it and I could pay my bills and I could pay my rent just from writing. Mm -hmm. And then it all kind of actually started with LA weekly. I don't know if you heard about that whole debacle, Um, Maybe tell the audience. So a few years ago, I mean, and this is a pattern that's happening all across the board at all kinds of different from large to small to local to national uh, publications. But Mm -hmm. they were bought out by a company. And I remember my editor telling me that he wasn't sure if he was going to have a job the next week or not. Everyone was kind of walking on ice because they weren't sure if they were going to be out or not. And unfortunately, they just totally just decimated the whole staff including my editor who was also kind of became somewhat of a mentor Mm -hmm. Um, and only I think like a handful of people made it through that uh, cut but the morale was just so down because I mean these were award-winning journalists these were hugely influential in Los Angeles and to think that they just got laid off is so discouraging to people like me who are still just trying to make it Mm -hmm. Um, they even actually reached out to all the freelancers and said, "Hey, you know, just because all your editors are gone doesn't mean we're not accepting pitches from you. So please send over your pitches." But then it kind of became a solidarity thing, right? And uh, a lot of people just stopped writing. Like Henry Rollins was a regular contributor, and he also stayed like stayed in solidarity with all the writers. They had a protest mm-hmm. outside where they rented a casket and put a bunch of old LA Weeklies inside and basically had a funeral for LA Weekly out in front of the LA Weekly building. And oddly, there was someone from the new company live streaming it on the Facebook feed. which I That's so weird. That was so bizarre. And I was, so I was watching the whole thing live. And, um, through LA Weekly. Through the LA Weekly Facebook feed as they're being protested. It was so bizarre. It was really strange. And they were doing speeches on a megaphone. It was proper protest style like you would Mm -hmm. expect there were signs yeah um but the after that I felt like it was just this downhill from there like after that I lost three more publications and then I lost Huffington Post and then I lost um like these two publications that had I had just started writing for went under and it was just kind of like this domino effect of just losing one after another after another I got Mm -hmm. laid off I was working at Uproxx too and I got laid off from them And now even the few publications that I still do write for, it's so much harder to get a story. I'll pitch to them. And it used to be I'd have a pretty good success rate. I'd say it was like three out of five Mm -hmm. yeses to every five pitches. Mm -hmm. And now it's I don't even I haven't even really been pitching. I'm just so kind of disenchanted with the whole thing. Unless there's like some really cool story that I really, really want to write, Mm -hmm. then I'll pitch it out maybe, or if it's, like, a friend, sometimes people hit me up and, like, hey, I have this album. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could pitch it out to a few people. So if it's, like, for a friend or yeah. someone that I support, um, I'll pitch it out. But even then, I don't even, a lot of the time, get these stories approved, you know? So I'm even pitching out to, like, new uh, publications that I have never written for, and that's a nightmare in itself. Like, I don't even get a re- so much as a response from mm-hmm. a lot of these people. And it's funny, because I, one of the most elusive publications that I've tried to write for is vice. Yeah. And, um, like noisy and thump when they were a thing. Well, I guess that was not a thing anymore, but, um, and I've just never even gotten so much as a response. And I've even had people connect me from vice that I've met out in there and they recommend me to the editors, like connect me and they're like, Hey, this is Mo. She's a writer. Like she'd love to write for vice. You should check out some of her pitches. And then I get one email saying, Oh, cool. Nice to meet you. And then I send pitches and just nothing. Yeah. And it's also funny, it's become this, like, inside joke with me and Miles where so many people are always like, you know what? You should write for Vice. Have you ever (laughs) thought about that before? I think you'd be, like, really, really good for them. I'm like, shut the fuck up, okay? I know. I know, but they don't want me, so I'm not going to write for Vice. Yeah. (laughs) Even though I want to. but. So it's just kind of this constant, like, battle of pitching and just not getting so much as a no. Mm -hmm. You know, I would even just appreciate someone saying, thanks for the pitch, but this I'm going to pass. Yeah. Just so I know, that are they even getting it? Are Mm -hmm. they just deleting it in their inbox? Like, I don't know. And at least when that line of communication is open, when they reject me, I feel I have an opportunity to maybe be more inquisitive about what kind of pitches they want or mm-hmm. what are they looking for or when's a good time to pitch or, you know, these kind of questions that maybe could help my chances, but it's just so difficult. So I'm actually taking a break from the whole festival journalism thing. Um, last year and the year before, I think we did like 10 festivals and I'm just, I'm burnt. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a lot. It's the travel, the expense. And at the end, I'm, I mean, these articles are paying me Anywhere from $30 an article to maybe $200 an article. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to get flight, but for the local festivals, I'm still the one, you know, we're driving, we're getting yeah. all the food, and it's more of just like the free festival ticket. I yeah. Think, Cause it's a trade. Mm-hmm. So we're just a little burnt on that. But we also have some personal projects that we kind of let fall to the wayside mm-hmm. because. Everything was just revolving around festivals and partying, and yeah, it wasn't exactly the healthiest lifestyle either. You know, it's not like I was going there sober, yeah, <laughs> I was definitely partying, and there's definitely a lot of all nighters and nefarious things happening. But, um, right now we're focusing more on big picture stuff, mm-hmm. I think. And anything um, you want to share? Yeah, there's a publication that Miles and I have been toying with the idea of for a long time now, and At first, it was kind of a pipe dream, but now it seems like kind of the perfect time because we basically want to create a festival platform. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially, it's going to be like a publication, but I don't want it to really be labeled as a magazine or publication because I want to do like video playlists, like kind of have it a little bit more diverse so that we don't have to be pigeonholed into the whole media Mm -hmm. package. And um, we have the name, but it's not – safe to say yet. (laughs) When it's safe, we can update the show notes and um,
1: and we can promote it on Powerful Ladies. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So,
0: uh, I mean, it's perfect because Miles can be in charge of, we're going to kind of split the tasks and have him be, we want it to be autonomous too. Like, we don't want to butt heads on this thing. Our relationship's Mm -hmm. always going to come first. So, I think as long as we have to, we just have to have trust in each other to like let us do our respective sides. So, he's going to be like in charge of more so video design and mm-hmm. photography and then I'm just going to do everything copy. Yeah. So, and then there'll probably be like an overlap in the Venn diagram of uh like video because mm-hmm. I definitely want to have a say in that and also I studied I want to use my bachelor's degree for something, so
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would be the opportunity. And um yeah, so we've actually started reaching out to writers. Uh, I did like kind of a first round of pitches and announcing and got a lot of interest from some really amazing writers that are down to kind of donate yeah. an article, you know, just so that we have kind of a collection of yeah. articles to pitch or to to launch with mm-hmm. that aren't just like 20 articles written by me. You know, I don't, I don't yeah. want it to be like that. So um, I've reached out to a few friends that are down. It's all very up in the air still. Right now, our biggest hurdle has been getting us like kind of solidifying the domain. Mm-hmm. That's been a huge process. And neither of us have any business acumen at all. So... We're totally just playing it by ear and asking advice when we can from people who know better. and well great news is that you're currently meeting with a business advisor for startups and small businesses
1: so we well, here can, we we can go. help we each
0: other out That's <laughs> perfect. How convenient!
1: It's a good way to spend a Sunday. <laughs> um, you know you you kind of uh, got to your story point where you were studying at UC Irvine and kind of what happened between that and becoming uh, a journalist?
0: Um, after UC Irvine, I was in a really hard place. Uh, I mean, my junior year of college was 2008 when the recession happened. So mm-hmm. being a college student, a college grad was literally the worst place you could be. Yeah, and so,, um, I was kind of also, I, I didn't really get into partying until later. I was kind of, when I first got to UC Irvine, I was total just, I don't really understand how a lot of people make it through college and party and somehow graduate because... I don't either. That shit was hard. It's so much work. You're studying, you're reading, you're... Maybe working, maybe... Yeah, maybe I was working at Hollywood Video. When they existed. (laughs) Yeah, when they existed. (laughs) I'd I'd have school from like 8 a.m. to 3 and then work at Hollywood Video from 5 to 1 a.m. every night. And it was just that classic Mm -hmm. college student story. And then... I graduated and unlike what my high school counselor said, my guidance counselor, I was not just finding a job, which mm-hmm. which is what I thought a bachelor's degree was, a ticket to a job. That's how it was sold to me in yeah. small-town Salinas. Um and I'm I'm I don't regret going to college. It has kind of fucked up a lot of things like my credit and mm-hmm. still constantly a slave to paying off my loans and that whole part I'm a little it's a little challenging. It's frustrating. It's very frustrating. I feel cheated Mm -hmm. almost, you know, like, or I got duped or something. And you're not alone in that at all. Yeah, definitely not. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm a film buff. Sweet. That's what I got out of my education. I paid how much to be this? To be a film buff. Yeah. Yeah. So, which I probably would have been if I would have kept working at Hollywood Video anyway. So, (laughs) but um, yeah, so then I was actually going to move. I remember after I graduated, my plan was to move uh, up to San Francisco. Yeah. And then that was just not possible when rents... I mean, rent was high then. It was still an expensive place to live. But yeah. I thought I was going to find a job right away. And then I was even looking for jobs in San Francisco. And then I met like this group of friends, you know, and everything just... I started to finally kind of settle in. Find to, your people. I found my people. And, and then I started going to... I went to my first music festival in 2005, and it was Coachella. And... I didn't even know what a music festival was. At that point, my concept of music festivals was Warped Tour, and that was kind of my only, uh, like... Been
1: to one of those. Experience, yep.
0: I've been to a few, and those were great. That was my only experience with a festival, but, you know, I didn't think about, like, camping, or I didn't, like, even know that that was a thing, and I remember we went, and I maybe saw one other stage. I stayed at the main stage the whole time, and then there was one other stage I went to because I didn't even know there was more. Yeah. So, like, I remember... Hearing stories about all these bands, I was like, Where was that? And they were like, The Sahara tent. I was like, I don't what how many tents are there? Mm-hmm. And so that was a game changer. And after that I was fully hooked. And then I kinda started off in the rave scene. And it's funny because so many of our friends have been like raving since they were like fifteen. And that just blows my mind because I didn't even know what ecstasy was or what a rave was for per se yeah. in high school. So I definitely was like a late bloomer when it came to all that stuff. And then the rave scene was interesting because that was like the first introduction to that I was really into electronic music because I was definitely like a emo punk rock yeah. hardcore kind of gal in like yeah. and like hip hop.
3: Yep. Who are your then, favorites?
0: What? Electronic? And uh, no, before
1: like when you were into emo and punk rock. Uh I was a
0: huge Weezer fan.
1: Yeah of
3: a Weezer tattoo
0: that Miles always makes fun of because I don't listen to them anymore, unfortunately. But because I'm just, they're not really, uh haven't really liked anything since Pinkerton, to be honest. If yeah. I can state real quick,
2: my coworker here just started a podcast called What's With These Homies Talking About Weezer.
3: What? <laughs> yeah.
2: He, ju- he. It just came out
0: the other day. Oh my God. I got to check that out. Yeah. That's hilarious. We are
2: big Weezer fans of your wolf. So. Oh,
0: perfect. <laughs> cool yeah, I like the
1: classics. I, I haven't heard any other new albums though
0: yeah it, it, it's not my thing. Yeah. I don't know maybe it's I, maybe it's good and I'm just kind of grew out of it. I'm yep. not really sure anymore. you know, like the blue album and Pinkerton mm-hmm. are just so like nostalgic for me that it's me too. hard for me. To, I'm like, is it it's good though? it's good music. It's yes. good. But compared to the new stuff, I just I can't connect with it. It's kind of just not my thing.
1: Well, when you listen to the Blue Album, you realize how similar it is to like original Beatles songs and like the totally. the um I'm I don't know anything about music, so I'm gonna completely botch this. But in regards to the beat and the energy of it and how simple they are too, like they they get stuck. Yeah, and so there's like it's t- it was always interesting to me to see. Because at that time, everyone was like, are you hardcore or not hardcore? And, like, Weezer was never hardcore. No. And, like, even if you listen to a Misfits album, you're like, wait, are you listening to the words? Yeah. Because this isn't actually that hardcore. Like, time out. Like, they look scarier than what they're talking about. Yeah,
0: definitely. (laughs) I was a Misfits fan, too, actually. That was good. And I Mm -hmm. love, like, no effects and all that. I love no effects. Yeah, like, punk rock stuff and Mm -hmm. um, Dead Kennedys and just your laundry list of punk rock music. And, yeah, so then... The rave scene was just such a stark transition. It's mm-hmm. like so opposite, you know, as opposed to just like getting punched and flying around a mosh pit. You're just yeah. like eyes rolling in the back of your head, <laughs> dancing with your arms up with a bunch of neon colors and yeah. candy bracelets on. It's just, it was so completely different than that world. And it's interesting because I feel like a lot of people made that jump. Mm -hmm. A lot of people that I know that were like in the rave scene, the electronic scene came from the punk rock scene, came from like the hip hop scene and eventually just all found their way to that scene because it's just so addictive. It's so much fun. The vibes there, you're not really seeing a lot of people getting in fights. Mm. It's not like such a violent, dark experience. It's the opposite. There's literally neon lights and colors and glow in the dark things everywhere. And so that was kind of a game changer. And then I, was, I went to Coachella for eight years in a row, and I, that was just kind of my favorite festival. And then I went to Lightning in a Bottle, and that just flipped my world upside down because mm-hmm. the first thing I noticed about Lightning was that there was no trash on the ground. Yeah. And I was like, how is this possible? There's no trash, and there's thousands of people here. I had this experience at Coachella one time where I was in the parking lot and, or in the campgrounds, and there was a trash tornado And it started spinning around above the campgrounds and everyone was just watching it with dread. And then, of course, when it stopped, it just started raining garbage. It was literally raining trash. And so that stuck in my mind as kind of a quintessential festival situation. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where I I didn't even know there was another option. I thought that's just how it is. It's kind of like, what do you expect when you have tens of thousands of people at an event where there's, and partying involved. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Lightning and saw that it is possible and that there wasn't even so much as a cigarette butt on the ground. People Mm -hmm. are picking up every single piece of trash or not even picking it up, but just not even putting it down or throwing it down. So... For people who aren't familiar, do you
1: want to explain like where that philosophy comes from?
0: Yeah, so Lightning in a Bottle, what I discovered is a transformational festival and that's kind of a contentious phrase. I know a lot of people kind of don't really like that phrase. No, I think it's just they don't want to be labeled, I yeah. guess. But I just think for the sake of simplicity, it's a transformational festival. It just differentiates them from, like, the mainstream, like, mm-hmm. Golden Voice corporate festivals. It's basically an yep. independent festival that kind of facilitates, like, growth and respect. And I think a lot of that was based on the Burning Man principles, mm-hmm. um, which are – I don't have them memorized or anything. There's, what, 12? I, yeah, 10 or – I think. 20? I don't know. They keep growing. (laughs) They're between 10 and 20. I think maybe 10. But they're pretty basic. I mean, yeah, so the 10 principles are just basic humanity, really. I mean, it's, it's funny that they even have to be listed. But it's essentially just... I'm glad
1: someone listed them.
0: Yeah, I think it just really... When you see them written down like that, you're like, oh, yeah. I guess I should have some kind of... Moral code.
1: And we'll have a link to the list of the 10 Burning Man principles in the show notes. Oh, nice.
0: Yeah, yeah. so I know that one of them is like radical inclusion, radical self-expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, leave No Trace is one of the biggest tenets of the Burning Man um, philosophy, and that's uh, that's something that has carried through all transformational festivals. So I feel like all transformational festivals have kind of become these extensions of Burning Man and of um, those 10 principles. Mm-hmm. So when I experienced that, it was such a game changer because – and everyone was so nice to each other. You didn't see just like just destroyed people like fucked up barfing all over the place yeah. or mm-hmm. creepy dudes like fondling you on the dance floor. You know, and I I'm don't sure know. that I'm sure that yeah. does go on. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I mean, because I don't want to, you know, excuse that that's or pretend like that's not happening everywhere. But mm-hmm. I'd say at least like percentage wise, it's a much smaller percentage than you would experience at like a Coachella or even an insomniac event. Um, Like EDC or these kind of bigger mainstream type festivals. It's funny to even think of a rave being mainstream these days, but they are. And so Lighting in a Bottle was the first taste of this kind of newfangled festival Mm -hmm. world. And from then on, I totally got like a little chip on my shoulder, and I was like, anti-Coachella. I was like, oh, I don't go to these Coachellas anymore. I don't go to insomniac events. You know, yeah. like, I go to places where they don't throw trash on the ground, and there's yoga classes, you yeah. know? Yeah, we're making art during the day. Yeah, and there's, like, yeah, there's art installations and live painting, and I can take a laughing yoga, breathing, gluten-free cooking workshop class, and, <laughs> like, it was just a totally different world, and so that's kind of the world that I really fell into, and that community is actually one of the things that has kept me going to these things and that's Mm kind of what kept me going the last two years going to 10 festivals because there's these people that I only, that basically only existed in this dimension, this transformational dimension that I never see outside and only see at this festival. And when I do, it feels like we're like lifelong friends. Like they're the best friends I've ever had, but I don't ever text them or call them. Probably a lot of them don't even have their phone number, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think the community has become the crux of my whole Festival experience—that's become the most important part.
1: Mm -hmm. And and I think it helps too that the when you said you found your people after graduating, like a lot of our people go to these festivals as well. And I mean, I think it's like 160 people were at the last Burning Man of our group. Of our group, (laughs) and you're like, wait, how big is the group? Yeah. And like, I'm I'm a newbie to the group, and I've known you guys for like five years now. Yeah. And like, there's. Decade before I showed up, and there's been people showing up just like I have the whole time, and it's like, holy smokes, how many people...
0: Yeah, we're like a virus. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. Um, but it, it's such a... what Lightning in the Bottle was the first time I met a whole bunch of the group, and it was my first festival of that kind. And it was eye-opening in the sense of... And we have a dog in the studio. We have special guests today, Tuffy and Cynthia, that are here observing. It would have been great if I was like, and that's Marina dancing in the corner. Yeah. She came with bells on, as you should. Um, But no, like it it was um, when you're in the mainstream world, the global world. Like, people who attend things like Burning Man are like, what? What are they doing? Like, are they leftover hippies or wannabe hippies? Like, what's happening? And then you realize you're like, no. Like, that's not what's going on. And how many, you know, you can go to a lightning in a bottle and find people who year-round are practicing that lifestyle. And then you can find the accountant who needs to go to a lightning in a bottle to, like, get back to who he actually is or she yeah, or was or was exactly <laughs> and so it's so nice to go to uh an event where there's so many people and people make eye contact they smile they share um like you said like my experience has never been there or burning man of anything negative uh in fact like i think i always am a nervous like okay i have to be a little bit responsible because what if something <laughs> happens like <laughs> um but Thank god for you. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's it's it's just nice to be around people who are just there to like contribute and be nice. Yeah. And like and contribute not even things but just who they are. Yeah. Just be 100% themselves. And present. Like, mm-hmm. you have to be present at those things. There's no service. Yep. Um, like, you get, you lose your friends all the time. Like, you never know where you're going to go. You think you make a left, and you're like, wait, I made that left eight steps ago, and how did I end <laughs> up back in the bathroom? Like, you it's you are forced to meet and rely and connect with people that you've never met before. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that people joke about if every politician, or maybe it's not a joke, but if every politician, you know, did... Uh, mushrooms or dmt or some other type of psychedelic experience that this world would be very different place and you know i don't they don't even probably need to do that like just go to one of those events yeah. and like see what's possible because if you can get all those people to not leave the trash and there's always people that do and get shunned by the community but like what else can we have happen yeah so I think it, it gives me hope for yeah. humanity and getting back to whatever the source of why we're here.
0: Yep. So here. that's kind of like one of the ethos or the underlying kind of ethos of the publication that Miles and I want to start, or mm-hmm. the platform, I guess, um, is that kind of community, that global awareness, that, dare I say, mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If that's one of those words, you know, there's kind of those words that I feel like have been kind of.
1: Oh, yeah. I wrote an article on Powerful Ladies called like gratitude and why it makes us roll our eyes and want to vomit. Yeah, and we still exactly. need it.
0: I need to read that. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Like, that's one of those words. Manifest. Yeah. I swear. Manifest. Intentions. Sacred. Everything's sacred. All now. these
1: beautiful words that want us to punch someone in the face. Yeah. Now. <laughs> now I'm just like, oh,
0: come on. Yeah. You know, but mindfulness for reals, though. Like, it is It is a real thing. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of. Burning Man, especially, has really passed into another realm because of the fact that people, there's this whole Silicon Valley thing now where yeah. people from Google are required to go, or someone, I don't know, maybe it's Google, maybe it's Tesla, I don't know, someone, some company in Silicon Valley, like, is like highly recommends or requires mm-hmm. their employees to go to Burning Man at least once because. The whole concept is if you can survive Burning Man and have a good time, then you're the type of person that we want to hire. Which I'm not mad at, that concept. Exactly. And it Mm -hmm. just means that they're open-minded, especially where at this point, technology and innovation is happening so fast. And I think innovation is what's going to save us, save Mm -hmm. the world, is Mm -hmm. new ideas. And Burning Man is just a big old Petri dish for new ideas. And I mean, Elon Musk, I don't know if this is true. I just remember hearing someone say this once, so... Don't quote me on this, but <laughs> I remember hearing that, like, supposedly he came up with the idea for the Tesla while he was at Burning Man. Like, he was inspired by the idea of how there was this self sustaining city in the middle of a desert and how it wasn't easy, but how it was doable, mm-hmm. you know? So, if that's possible, if you can build the most epic city in the middle of nowhere, then why couldn't he make an electric car, yeah. you know? So, I feel like there's so much, it's just like, ripe with mm-hmm. inspiration and ideas and some of the people you meet like you said earlier you know like there are those people that are super heady 24 7 like yes you know they're wearing like harem pants every day and the pine cone necklaces and just like totally living that life you know mm-hmm. but then there's those people that you meet that you would never ever think would go to burning man and then somehow it comes up in a conversation and yeah you're like you 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 that you? happens to me every
1: time I tell people I've gone.
0: <laughs> really? You're the, one. Like,
1: <laughs> you're, you're the one? What that's were you talking, doing there? You're the, you? Were you a narc? Like, why were you there?
0: <laughs> like, you're like, what a dick. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, That's funny.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, no, it's a, it's, uh, I tell everyone I meet that you should go at least once because traveling around the world has been such a big thing passion and commitment of mine because I want to see what's happening elsewhere like there's so much on this planet to see like we get so hyped on avatar as a movie and you're like okay everyone listening like we are that planet like we're the only weird planet that actually can sustain life and has all this variety of species like go see it like It's not like some made-up nonsense. It's actually our backyard.
0: It's not virtual reality.
1: No. Like, go to the Amazon. (laughs) Go wherever. Like, it's here. And there's going to Burning Man is like going to another planet. I mean, it helps that it's in this desert landscape, so you kind of feel like you're on Mars. And most things do not work the way they would in modern civilization. It's completely different. And the best thing about traveling is when you can show up and – assume you don't know anything and just figure out how it works there. And that's what you have to, you are forced to experience that at Burning Man. Because the second, like just getting in the door is a test of, you know, if I, if I compared having to move to Germany and like the three months preparing and everything that you have to like give up and get rid of mentally and physically to like move, you have to experience that in like the 11 hours yeah. that you're
0: waiting to just get in the door. Yeah. And then if you're a newbie, they make you roll around in the dirt. Yes. And I was so like, no, <laughs> let me stay I, clean that's longer. I, said. I, was like, just, I was like, I'm going to get dusty anyway. Why do I have what? to end it so soon? Yeah. And they're like, no, you have to do a, a dust angel. And I was like, I haven't slept in 12 hours. Please don't make me do yeah. it. And they're like, you have to do it. And I was just doing it. I had the biggest stink face. I was the same. I was, I like, was so mad. I need to pee. Let me get to the bathroom. <laughs> not on the same page because some people were just flopping around like a fish out of water no. they were super down and i was like "God,
1: i hate being told to do something
0: i know that's another thing that's one of my biggest pet peeves i instantly even if it's something cool i instantly like, don't want to do it
1: yeah like, eat the cupcake i'm like
0: no. no don't tell me what to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i like pie anyway
1: yeah exactly
0: so snarky
1: yeah i mean i appreciate that that's there because it means that i'm you know, not just saying yes to everything, but there's a moment where you're like, okay, just quit being a jerk. Like,
0: yeah, it's all right. Just participate.
1: Yeah, it's okay <laughs> to just do what someone asks once in a while.
0: Yeah, something as silly as rolling around in the dirt. Mm-hmm. But what we do need, I do want to specify. Is this isn't just any old regular dirt. Like, this isn't just dirt that no. you can just fleck off your your pants. Like, this is like you're in a, like a patina of dirt. Like, it's a coating. Yeah, it's like it's like being antiqued. Before I went,
1: like, this is how the dirt is. I was told by so many women who had gone before about the JJ hygiene while you're there and (gasps) protecting it because the dirt literally gets everywhere. I got
0: a UTI at Burning Man.
1: So many people are like, okay, whatever you do, like, make sure you're wearing A layers of underwear or something or like, like, Things that you see people walk. They post pictures of people wearing bikinis at Burning Man all the time. And you're like, that's going to suck tomorrow. No, nah, I was one of those. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nobody warned me. Yeah. I saw pictures of people in bikinis and I was like, sweet. I have bikinis. Yeah. I can ride a bike in a bikini. That was the worst idea. Yeah. So but that's the type
1: of thats a type of sand and dust. That yeah, it is. it's
0: dust. It's really like the consistency of flour.
1: I, like, uh, But, like, the finest flower you've ever experienced. Yeah, really. We, I mean, our garage, we clean it over and over again. And everything looks sparkly. And then you come back in the next day, you're like, where did the dust come from? Yeah. <laughs> like, it just keeps <laughs> seeping out yeah, it, forever. You can't get rid of it.
0: No. Yeah, I have camping gear, like, that has been even through rain. And it still yeah. has playa dust on it.
1: Forever. Yeah. I mean, even just after we got back and scrubbed. Yeah. Like physically ourselves in the shower. I was still getting dust out of my nose and ears for weeks. I'm yep. like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> how is this still happening?
0: It's like it's breeding.
1: Yeah. And I and they everyone talks about um, what's the correct term when you come out of Burning Man? Decompressing. Oh yeah. They talk about decompressing, and I'm like, whatever. Like, I don't do all that stuff. I'll be fine decompressing, no big deal. And then even being the among the most sober people at Burning Man, I still had a decompression. Yeah, you're like, shit, Wait, I forgot. This is what real life is like. Who, who signed up for this? <laughs> the who default agreed? world. Yeah, you're like, it. it get, you get hit so quickly with responsibilities and to do lists and
0: all this like bullshit pressure that we've yeah. created. You're and like, making up for all the time that you missed in the quote unquote default world. Right. And it just all comes rushing back at you and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. I'm not ready for that yet. Okay, guys. I just came back from Burning Man. Do you even understand? And they're like, I don't fucking care.
1: No. (laughs) I mean they tell people not to quit their jobs, but last time we went, Jesse quit his job like within two days. I mean it worked out great for me. We got to go to Europe for a month. So I was like, sweet. But it's still like you you want to change so many things so you can get back to that place and they're they're like they warn you. There's an amazing YouTube video. I will add it in the show notes of a husband that comes back from Burning man and his wife trying to deal with him and it is so funny. Oh, I got to see that. Yeah. It's it's re- very accurate. Nice. Mhm. Um so let's get back to you and how you're a powerful lady. Um, so you were a dancer and a piano pianist pianist. Yeah. I mean, up? those were
0: hobbies. Mm-hmm um ballet impacted like they definitely were a huge part of my life ballet was especially piano was just kind of something that was always there mm-hmm. I think because it was just constant like my parents taught both my parents taught music out of our house we had like two music studios in our house one of them was just our living room and then the other one was a garage that we converted into a music studio because they had to be far enough apart from each other in the house that there wasn't Noise. Noise, but Mm -hmm. where my room was in my house, I could hear both all the time. So I'm talking like 9 a.m. Saturday oboe lessons. I'm talking trumpets at like 9 o'clock at night, French horns on a Tuesday. Like it was crazy. There was just constant music all the time. And it's funny because growing up, of course, I was kind of annoyed by it. Mm-hmm. But like looking back on it, like it's a pretty cool way to grow up, you know. And yeah, a lot of my parents' students became like their closest friends and huge family friends. Like a lot of them would come over on like because they would have like the kids during like the after school hours, and then in the early mornings, and then at late nights they'd have the parents. So we taught they taught like entire families, like all the kids, both the wow. parents. So I was like friends with a lot of the kids, and then the parents would come over and hang out. And a lot of the time they would like stay for dinner. They'd have their piano lesson or their French horn lesson. And,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: then I would hear my dad like drinking beer with them until two in the morning, you know? So it was, it was definitely like a huge part of the social life also. So mm-hmm. it was all kind of intertwined. And because it was in our home, it was so much more intimate than like at a studio or something like that Yeah. to where we're not just inviting him in for a lesson. We're inviting him into our home. And mm-hmm. I remember my mom would like have coffee in the morning with a lot of her students that became her best friends like and that became their tradition and Mm -hmm. so but because it was just so it just became a ubiquitous thing to me so I also even got to a point where you know piano wasn't cool anymore and I wanted to play guitar of course and so I was like I don't want to play piano anymore I'm playing guitar now I'm a guitarist now and they're like okay you don't have a guitar so good luck with that save your money and then uh, for my 13th birthday, they my parents always told me they were never going to get me an electric guitar. They're like, if you get an electric guitar, it's going to be paid for by your money. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> but then I found uh, an acoustic guitar my sister had that was like not the greatest. But mm-hmm. I started just teaching myself in my room and they would hear me and they're like, okay, she's actually serious about it. So they, for my 13th birthday, bought me like an electric guitar. And, I mean, it was just a cheap one. It wasn't yeah. some fancy one. and um, Which I still have today. And so I started – my dad was like, okay, well, if you're going to just be teaching yourself in your room, I'm not going to have that. So he started teaching me. First, he made me play. He's like, I'm not going to let you do it until you learn proper classical guitar. So he made me learn the classical guitar where it's like you're holding it like up here like this. Yes. And um, so that was – I learned that, and then I got really into that in high school. And then the ballet thing started really taking over. I had like two of my best friends were really into it, and I had done it as a little kid. And then stopped doing it. And then two of my best friends, who I thought were just, like, so cool, were doing ballet, like, in middle school. So I got back into it. And I just became obsessed. And I excelled at it really fast, faster than I had expected to. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, all of my dreams had just shifted. Like, I went from wanting to be a writer. And the music thing was always just a hobby. There was never – there's honestly never a point in my life where I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. You know, I was like, I want to write about rock stars. But – um, and I, I mean, there was times I thought about being a singer, but that was more of just like a pipe dream when I was a little kid, uh, singing along to Disney songs and stuff.
1: Oh, well, like, so glamorous, right? You're yeah, like, I was like, I can, can
0: do it. I do can do yeah, it. I was <laughs> like, Dolly Parton can do it. I, I can do it. For Isn't sure. she amazing? Oh my god, she's,
1: she's on my dream list for the Powerful Ladies podcast. Oh if anybody god. has a connection,
0: yeah, please, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I love her. I just imagine singing with her, like uh, celebrities karaoke the whole time. <laughs> Awesome. And Jordan has to like edit my voice out to like save the rest of you guys. Or auto tune. Auto tuned. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: wow, she sounds great. Yeah. Oh, she's nailing this Yeah. Oh, can I get a refill yeah. too? When you, um Jordan is a singer songwriter. So really? I think she's having like a I wish I lived at your house moment versus our oh,
0: house. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: No,
2: you are you keep talking about this stuff and yes, I have that. When Thank I you. uh I don't uh, I'm trying to work on talking about myself more. When I was 18, I was an opening actor,
1: Dickie Betts. Who's Dickie Betts? From the Almond Brothers Band. Oh, what? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. She's a, technically uh, has an operatic voice.
0: Whoa, that's badass. That's
1: yeah. fun. I was trying it's to convince fun. her to go do opera in Europe for a long time, but she didn't take me up on it. I have a friend. I almost went. Who as a male opera singer out Whoa. there. Whoa. Dang, that's epic. Yeah, and you guys got to talk, right? Yeah, we talked. I sent
2: him. Uh, long story short, he he gave me all this advice, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is a, this is a lot of work. I don't know if I want to do this." <laughs> and he's like, "But I, I can't. I can't tell you like anything else until I hear you." And so I sent him a video, not expecting to hear back for like days, and then within five minutes, he's like, "You need to come to Europe now." And I was like,
0: <laughs> That's "No." Awesome! Damn. <laughs> yeah. But you know if it's not – sometimes, too, I feel like when you follow those kind of passions that bring you so much just pure joy that you literally just do it for the pure joy that it sometimes gets ruined. Yeah. You know, when you start having to, like, bring into account, like, logistics and also just the pure vulnerability of it as well and really putting yourself out there, Mm -hmm. there's that kind of threshold that you're like, uh, do I just want to keep this, like, this pure secret little – special thing that's just like this relationship I have with this or do I really want to put it out there Mm -hmm. and have to deal with all that competition and it's just it's scary yeah
2: yeah and going the upper route it's very intimidating it's like 10 plus years of training and training with a professional and then like working your way up there and it's like you there's so much more that people don't realize that there is to it yeah and
1: um and there's like ten spots in the entire world yeah. if you want to be an opera singer. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know what would be the equivalent anywhere else. Like, I want to be an astronaut. Okay, cool. There's more astronauts than opera singers, so that's easier. <laughs> oh my god,
2: that's crazy. <laughs>
1: right. I mean, I'm I may, I'm guessing, but yeah, I'm yeah. I'm willing to bet my research will back that up. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bam. So back to you and being awesome. So you got totally sucked into the ballet, ballet. world.
0: Yeah. So. Um, my dad before he came to America he was um, the conductor for the Munich Symphony Orchestra Mm -hmm. so in order to do that you have to be trained in every instrument you have to be trained in opera like he didn't sing but he like would take opera classes to better understand what was and ballet to understand what was happening on stage because it's all one big organism so Mm -hmm. um, he took ballet classes but he couldn't sing so he would sit in on these opera classes and like spend time with all the opera singers and then but he actually took ballet classes because he wanted to understand the beats and the rhythm and the kind of physical connection that Mm -hmm. happens especially when he's there conducting yeah so he could have a deeper like intuition as far as when he's up there so ballet was definitely when he when I started getting into it he was actually like really excited about it because he was like you know he's always been a big ballet like my parents were total like culture nerds you know like Mm -hmm. you know they weren't We didn't watch like football or I mean, actually, I guess they did sometimes. But I mean, it was just a very like non-traditional American family, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so ballet, we'd go to the ballet all the time in the opera in San Francisco. And um, I just had fallen in love with ballet. And he was my both my parents. They were just so supportive of everything. Thank God, you know, like I'm really Mm -hmm. grateful for that because there's not a lot of people that have that kind of a support, you know, especially for the arts. The arts is such a tough. Mm-hmm. you know any realistic parent I wouldn't even slight them for being like you're this is unrealistic And yeah. it's, it's a tough world so if you're gonna do it like good luck kind of situation you know mm-hmm. but they were always fully supportive and you know looking back like ballet was not cheap you know I had to buy tights and leotards and point shoes are so expensive and I would blow through point shoes like nothing you know they were like mm-hmm. 80 bucks a pop
3: mm-hmm. and
0: so they were like scrambling to make this dream you know we weren't rich so it was like definitely i mean they were teachers for god's sake so yeah
1: and music teachers on top of yeah, that
0: exactly. yeah exactly such a niche type of teacher and so um i'm really grateful for that but i got super into it and then i started auditioning and i was like hell bent i was like i'm going to be a ballerina and um and then i started going through the audition process and that Totally changed everything. Like my ballet studio, we were very tight knit. We were all close, very supportive of each other. There was no body shaming or mm-hmm. nobody felt uncomfortable about who they were, what sk- color their skin was, or how big their boobs were. Like, yeah. And, you know, I mean, for people who might not know, like the typical ballet body is like this super tall, super lanky skin and bones and muscle, mm-hmm. you know, just like pure muscle. But that's changing a little bit mm-hmm. thanks to people like Misty Copeland. Yeah. Um, but I remember I went to my first audition and I, my ballet community was like such a important part of my life. So I, I remember there was like this room where all have our numbers pinned on our leotards and we're all stretching. It was like the stretching room before we go into the audition. And I saw this girl and I was like, Hey, how's it going? Like, who are you auditioning for? Cause that we would audition at San Francisco ballet, uh, their Academy and they would go through like basically companies from all over the world would come through there like during a season and Mm -hmm. you just back to back to back just do all these different auditions for all these different companies all over the country and all over the world and so I was trying to talk to this girl and like just kind of ease the nerves a little bit and maybe Mm -hmm. connect make a new friend who knows and she was not having it she just like looked at me and turned around everyone was like that it was like because we were a competition but I was like that doesn't mean we can't make it less awkward you know yeah if you get it and I don't like good for you you earned it you know Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not gonna like hate you because of it yeah and so when I realized that it was just this really kind of acidic environment I started kind of having cold feet and but I kept doing it and I got into a few so the way that it works is a lot of the time you have to get into a program so first you audition into the get this program and then you do the dance program it's either a summer program or like a semester Mm -hmm. and you go through their academy and then they have like performances and stuff and then from there there's scouts and stuff in the audience and maybe you'll get picked maybe you won't or you'll just keep going through the academy but like your odds are a lot higher if you do it through the academy to mm-hmm. actually get picked up and into a company so I was trying to do this thing and it's not cheap either you know like that's another thing is my parents would have had to pay for this and it, it plus was Plus driving plus yeah, or flight like mm-hmm. so the two places I got in was was in Chicago and New York so like it would have been a total life changer. And mm-hmm. so I remember I didn't know what to do because it was also going to be – the not, another option was it was either going to be ballet or college. Yeah. So – and you can do both. I mean, I'm not saying that that's not an option, but in my world, in my small little town, that's the only options I thought there were. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. even think about, like, that I could just do it for fun. You know, I was just like yeah. – I was just doing it the way that all the other ballerinas told me to do it and that my teacher told me was, like, the best way to do it. And so – um my dad actually gave me this advice that has stuck with me. And he said, you know, I want you to make this decision. Cause I asked him, I was like, I don't know what to do. Like I, I, I f- I'm getting cold feet. I don't know if I want to do ballet anymore. Like it brings me so much joy and I love it. And I feel like incomplete without it. But at the same time, I kind of got a taste of the world just because of like the audition process and the tension. And mm-hmm. also like just the body image images. Like I felt like I was not the right body type you know and mm-hmm. and that and th- there was actually one uh company I'm not going to say their name but there was one company where I showed up and I you have to like kind of pre-sign up for the auditions because there's only so many slots yeah I'd showed up and you have to bring I mean this was like kind of before emails so mm-hmm. like you have to bring them like your headshots and like yeah uh, all these different kind of like ballet poses that you have to give to every audition and I showed up there and handed them to them and I was like oh this is my I have an audition at whatever time and they're like you're not what we're looking for and they just turned me away right at the table. They didn't even let me audition. So as like a 16-year-old girl, yeah. that's like crushing. crushing. Mm-hmm. And because um, they, I didn't even get a chance to show my skill. Like it was just based on the way I looked. And then I looked up the – I told my ballet teacher about it. She's like, oh, they're infamous for that. She's like, that's like total classic thing. They ha- They want just all their little pretty clones. They don't want anything different and it's it's about skin color and body size so i had mm-hmm. both of those things working against me and so i was just like wow so those that experience it was just kind of the a, a bunch of little experiences like that through mm-hmm. the audition process that really fucked with my head and yeah. so when i asked my dad for advice and i didn't know what to do i was like and i and also they were so proud of me like they loved my ballet and they had put so much effort so i felt like it wasn't just me anymore it was also like their their invest i was like their investment you know like that it was like all writing on this and so i started feeling guilty like i was like fuck they invested all this money and time and took me to all these rehearsals and these auditions and like just like literally put their lives on hold for this and now i'm like gonna be like nah i'm over it you know so i felt really guilty and so i didn't know what to do so i asked my dad and he was like you need to make that decision but what i will tell you is if you want to like, strengthen your body and become, like, a physical tool. Not, like, an asshole tool, but, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, if you want to use your body as, like, a tool and have that be your entire life revolved around being, basically, like, a well-oiled machine, then go to do ballet. Like, if you feel like you want to have a life that's based in more, like, physical activity and just kind of honing in on that kind of a skill, then for sure do ballet. But if you want to improve your mind and expand your brain and get an education – and then you definitely have to go to college. So he's like, basically, you have to choose between your body and your mind. And I was like... What a crazy choice to make at I know. I was like... Uh, and it's funny because, you know, when you're so young, you're so... You're not really so cerebral. You are all right. physical. Like, everything is so physical. You're getting into your... You're going through puberty. Like, mm-hmm. you're really starting to come into your own physical... And I was always an athlete, too. I played basketball and track. And mm-hmm. so, like, my... Athletic, athleticism was all i really did have you know like and i did well in school too but it was i i mean i just that wasn't like what brought me joy really yeah. you know like i didn't like studying and doing homework but i loved playing basketball and doing ballet so that was like a really really hard decision because i was like so do i want to do more school more studying of which i do not like and it's boring or do i want to like go dance and be a ballerina but um i eventually obviously chose college how did you make that choice i i think i think it was already kind of made honestly because of that audition process and Mm -hmm. just how i kind of had like my life flashed before my eyes and i just pictured myself eating like iceberg lettuce and ice cubes for the rest of my life smoking cigarettes (laughs) yeah like smoking cigarettes and and like just having no social life and having gross feet Mm -hmm. that was another thing i was like i don't know if i want to sacrifice having (laughs) nice feet and pedicures yeah you know and that's a shallow reason but you know it's just things like that like your my feet would get destroyed it took years for my feet to recover from mm-hmm. that to actually kind of look presentable and normal but just little things like that you know and I have such a huge respect for ballerinas who actually do make that huge leap because it is crazy it's a crazy lifestyle and it's such a commitment and and it's so hard especially as a woman things are finally changing though and like I'm who I mentioned earlier Misty Copeland is yeah. like Not only changing just the idea of like skin color, Mm -hmm. but also just body shape. Like one of the reasons why she had such a hard time making it was because she had such an athletic build. She's ripped, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's not the stereotypical ballet body. They're supposed to be kind of very lean waif. Yeah, and they're still all muscle, but it just doesn't – the way that the ballet training works, it pulls your muscles instead of compresses them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then – I decided to go to college, and it's 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 funny because I actually got into a college as a dance major, one of the UCs, and I ended up deciding to do—so I even had that option again. I had to mm-hmm. face that choice once again and still somehow chose my brain. I just, I just went with my gut instinct. I mm-hmm. feel like my gut instinct has led me pretty far.
1: How has um, your parents choosing to be immigrants and live in the U.S.? impacted you and how you think about the world
0: um it's definitely expanded my mind a lot you know like growing up I was always kind of an outcast in that way I had a few friends that I connected with whose parents were also immigrants um but as far as like the way the world is right now in America with immigrants and stuff it's it's hard because I I take I'm not an immigrant personally but I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them so I definitely Mm -hmm. take a lot of those things personally and um it's growing up with immigrant parents was interesting because they wanted to be American obviously like they chose to be here so we did you know like some American things but also you know I was like eating like liverwurst sandwiches for lunch and stuff like that. (laughs) like you know it was also like a very peculiar family dynamic and my parents like even just, like, pop culture, they just were so clueless about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I have an older sister. She's 10 years older. So she was kind of my educator as far as anything American pop culture and music-wise. And I feel, I don't know, and it's interesting, too, like, the definition of, like, or people's idea of what an immigrant is, you mm-hmm. know, these days. And, um, I mean, it was kind of hard, too, because um, I actually recently wrote, like, a medium piece, and that was actually the first chapter. It was a pared-down chapter, first it was a pared down version of the first chapter of the book that I'm writing, which is about my dad who served in the Hitler youth. And um growing up in a small town, everybody knew each other. My dad had a German accent. Yeah, and he would actually also go around and discuss the his experiences in World War II for like history classes and to kind of educate them and give them a first mm-hmm. a firsthand look into the war, which is rare because we're all. In California, reading it out of a textbook, so... Right. um, But then rumors started spreading that he was a Nazi, you know, because they didn't understand the difference between the Hitler Youth and the Nazis, and... Right. So... You know, I was teased, and I just always thought it was so bizarre because my name, Morena, means brown, like complected, dark complected girl. Yeah, and I'm dark complected girl, and they were literally calling my dad a Nazi, and my mom's Filipino, and I'm just, it was just like, you don't know what that means if you can even
1: say
3: that. Yeah, I was like, how yeah. can
0: you even say that? You don't like, do you? Do I look like a Nazi to you? No, I'm not Aryan at all. No, not whatsoever. Yeah. And so that was like a constant battle for me. I mean, it really did shape who I was. It toughened me up a lot. And mm-hmm. thankfully, I had, you know, like, intelligent parents. And I had good friends that weren't like that, you know. So yeah. there was tons of my friends that were super close to my parents. And that was they were just like, oh, I don't mind them. They're just fucking idiots. So, <laughs> um, so advice it, for everyone that's a jerk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're just mm-hmm. fucking idiots. Just dismiss them.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, so I don't know. that That was kind of a hard time. But it also... I was also just thankful because it, I was like, well, whatever. I don't. I, I could have taken it in a much more hurtful way, but I just tried to kind of roll with it and just roll my eyes and, mm-hmm. and move on. And it almost kind of gave me an appreciation, oddly, yeah, for growing up different because I was like, it kind of bums me out that you're calling me a Nazi and you don't even understand what that means and like the implications of it. And right. that I'm proud of my heritage, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm proud of the fact that My dad has these crazy stories about growing up in the Hitler youth, and I'm sorry that he had to go through that. It wasn't, like, a choice, you know? For sure. Obviously. But it definitely made me more grateful to, like, grow up in an environment that was unique, you know? Like, at the time, it was a little bit hard, but always in hindsight, it's like, you know, I have a better story to tell, and um, I've learned a lot from it, and definitely has shaped me into who I am, for sure.
1: I didn't realize how um related our family was to our culture of origins until I actually moved to Europe. Like I just assumed how I grew up was like super American and we're very much American mutts. But like my mother her father was born in Norway and her mother is first generation Swedish Norwegian. And so on her side we're very close to that the Nordic like people came over, I can tell when. Like it's not even one generation. Whoa. And on my dad's side, it was a little bit uh, longer on the Italian side, but way longer on his dad's side. And I just assumed we were super American. And then I went and lived in Europe and realized how Nordic my mother's family was. Like, I didn't know how ingrained it was and how they behaved and how they approached people and hosting and food. And same with my dad's side of the family. And I don't think that... I wish that we celebrated all of the cultures that are here more than trying to like white bread everything. Like technically no one is actually white bread.
0: <laughs> no. And if they are, they're not white bread from this place cuz all the people that were here were brown. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So there's something
1: I don't think we give ourselves enough credit about how much our the cultures that came before us are actually part of how we grew up and how we still live our lives. I mean even like what I expect Christmas to look like is very specific based on how it was celebrated in our home, which was, like, a more Nordic Christmas. How did you guys celebrate it? Like, like to me, like, Chris, it's not Christmas that you don't have, like, the little gnomes and elves and... The there's like, bags Yeah, there's, good like...
2: Good Yule? Yeah. Good, we have a, you have huge Good Yule signs up? Yeah, which is oh. Norwegian for... Mer- like, yeah.
1: Merry Christmas.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And, like, how there's, like, specific designs that... Is you that
0: would, where Yule came from? hmm mm-hmm. Like, Whoa. the Yule log?
2: We yeah. also had specific movies that were very Swedish, like a, that one of the monsters coming down, like the trolls. Yes, yeah. the Krampus.
1: Not no. Krampus, because that's an amazing story. But um, no, like because there's so many t- trolls that are related to Norway in particular that they have like s- Christmas stories that are about the tr- the trolls.
0: Have you seen that movie, Troll Hunter? No, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Sidebar: You should watch it. <laughs>
1: amazing one of the things I would love to come back to is as a journalist and knowing how journalists are being treated today and free press is being treated today how does it impact you personally and what are you um hopeful about and concerned about for the future of journalism
0: um I mean it's affected me personally because I can't find work doing Mm -hmm. it especially because I'm in such a niche topic you know like I said earlier there's not exactly a Need for another article about a music festival or a new artist that's coming out, you know. Um, a lot of those positions and people that are writing about that have been kind of grandfathered in too, so there's just not a lot of work to go around. Um, one of my concerns is that people stop reading. I feel like people will keep writing, but what I'm more afraid of is that people will stop reading mm-hmm. because. I feel like there's always just going to be another generation of journalists and writers being pumped through colleges and, I mean, I also know plenty of people who were just natural writers and um, didn't even study journalism. Like, I'm one of those yeah. people. Um, I knew, like, three other journalists that studied totally different topics and ended up journalists anyway. So,
3: mm-hmm.
0: that's. I feel like there's going to be constantly people wanting to write because that is such... I mean, like, you know, it all started with cautionary tales. Like, writing is ingrained in our DNA. So... I feel like that's going to continue, but because of social media and just kind of the state of attention these days that Mm -hmm. people will less and less people are reading. And I think that's kind of become the issue, Mm -hmm. you know, and also what I've noticed is a shift in what people want to read. I feel that classical journalism, as much as I love and respect it, and it's definitely something that's a huge piece of me isn't really what people want anymore I noticed because uh, so after I had become kind of disenchanted with writing I basically just I almost quit like altogether I was almost just like I'm over this I'm done I can't make money it's just not worth it like the amount of pitching and work that goes into it like I don't even Mm -hmm. know what the point is anymore I don't even know if I'm good the self-doubt sinks in I'm like I don't even know if I'm a good writer I'm like I might even just be a shitty writer I don't even know anymore I can't I can't even tell anymore I'm so like jaded and so – and I, re- I still read a ton of articles, and I think that constant self-doubt plus, like, comparing yourself to others is such a huge, mm-hmm. debilitating issue that a lot of cre- – just creatives in general have to deal with at all times. So I noticed, though, that – I was like, you know what? I, I need to – that's not cool. I, I need to keep writing. So I opened a Medium account and wrote these two pieces that were just total personal firsthand – not classical journalism, not edited, mm-hmm. super raw, really emotional, probably had a few typos. I, at least I hope not, but they yeah. might have been. But um, I got more of a response to those two articles than I've gotten on all of my other journalism articles like combined. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because I was personal and vulnerable and showed the world a piece of myself that I hadn't before, Yeah. and I think that's what people want now is to read these personal easy reads you know like not everyone can sit through a 4,000 word expose yeah you know and uh, most people that do are probably other journalists and writers you know or you know academics or and I mean I'm not trying to like pigeonhole this because I'm sure everybody reads lots of people read but I just I felt like I didn't even realize that writing that those two medium articles were becoming a social experiment, but it kind of felt that way after yeah. I saw the reaction that they had and I was just blown away by it. And it wasn't even my best work that I thought, you know, like that's another thing is I, I wasn't even trying to, I wasn't trying anymore. I was just writing. And yeah. it wasn't even my best work as far as some of the stuff that I've written in the past, especially for LA Weekly. Like that was some of the best stuff that I thought I'd ever written, but a lot of the time it just didn't even get any love. And I don't even care, like, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's more indicative of what people care about and it's personal stories, it's vulnerability. Um, And so we're finding that storytelling is, I mean, it's what connects us, it's what heals us, it's what teaches us, it's what, you know, keeps us from like jumping off a cliff because you hear cautionary tales and oral tradition and even hieroglyphics and cave drawings. You know, these are all forms of storytelling. And I feel like, In journalism, sometimes it gets lost because it's more reporting. Yeah. You'll get kind of caught up in the the reporting end of it. And I feel like this personalized storytelling, and I think people just want to see other people be vulnerable Mm -hmm. because that is when you really connect with someone. Well, it's also
1: the opposite of what you're seeing in social media right now of this perfection and everything's awesome, and you're like, that's not real.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's very polished. They're Mm -hmm. putting just a polished version of their life
1: yeah. Sometimes it's not
0: even accurate to what's actually happening at all.
1: Yeah. I recently saw or read um, something that stuck with me about how humans are different than other animals. And the biggest, um, obviously, language is a big part. But the thing about language that makes it different is that we're able to tell the stories of what's happened before you and keep it going. We're like, you know, a dog is born. And sure, they have communication. But they can't tell each other about what happened in the past, at least not that we can tell. Yeah. And the fact that humanity is able to to forward experiences is something so unique that even if we find other species that can communicate, and we can start to translate dolphin or whale. Like we don't know if they have the oral history that has allowed humanity to make leaps and bounds because we keep growing on each other's lessons versus having to start semi over again
0: yeah
1: um i i know that i one of the things i'm worried about with how the political climate is and cultural climate is that i really want people to remember that they can't just hear something and that becomes fact like i'm so happy that we were taught to like read more than one thing and figure out what the truth is for ourselves versus get it from somebody else and i remember when i read a living in Germany I wanted to read more about the history of Germany and it was so weird to like be renting an apartment and this really old couple was renting it and the wife's like oh yeah my husband lived in the U.S. I'm like oh where she's like Canada I'm like okay <laughs> it's what we do to Europe all the time yeah, exactly. right like I was in Ireland you're like yeah, I live in England yeah <laughs> same thing like, it's
0: fine it's the yeah. same
1: um and I was like oh like what was he doing in Canada she's like POW camp oh what I'm like, "Oh." Like in my <gasps> mind, like that Germany is so long ago, yeah. but no, it's like my grandparents fought in World War II, but I didn't think that there would still be grandparents yeah. who had fought in World War II on the other side there. It just didn't dawn on me. I didn't think Whoa. about it until that moment happened. And so I got really curious about the history and what happened and how it got to that place and hearing people talk. Nuremberg has an amazing place called the Documentation Center where they walk you through what happened to lead up. During World War II and after, and so many people, they were so relieved to finally have food and jobs after what happened um, in World War One and even before World War One that they didn't ask all these questions because, for the first time ever, they felt like there was progress happening, and I like it just made me appreciate so much to like how America tends to challenge. And be more difficult than sometimes you want people to be, but it allows like proof that things are happening. And I I wish more people were doubting or taking things with a grain of salt or challenging it instead of just being like, "Oh yeah, well,
0: whether it's CNN or Fox News, they said so." You're like, "Hold
1: on, like we can't trust either of
0: them." (laughs) I know. I know. And that's, I mean, as a journalist, too, that's kind of one of the first things you learn is citing, you mm-hmm. know, and citing sources is like such a huge thing. So it's like, and always kind of reading things through a keen eye and making sure that you know the source and where it's coming from. And it's always still being written by somebody. So being told
1: by somebody. Somebody <laughs>
0: is saying it and re- writing it, you know, and yeah. that somebody, whether it's an assignment or they have their own agenda, it's coming out of one person's brain
3: mm-hmm.
0: or a collective of people. It depends. But, I know, I, d- I definitely, that's, it's hard when people just keep, and you see it just being reposted, reposted, yeah. reposted, and you're like, what is happening? It's, it's, it's scary.
1: Yeah, and even there's, like, the jokes out there about, like, there'll be a very catchy headline or controversial one in a picture, but if you open the article, it's like, hey, dumbass, you just posted something
0: you didn't read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm like, yes, like, yep. I'm glad someone was. I like when wa- people do that. Wise
1: enough to do it, but, yeah.
0: Or, like, I remember there was, like, this meme that was going around, and it was, it was a pretty good prank, and it said, Um, it had a picture of like Minute Maid apple juice and a picture of Clorox bleach. And it said, dihydrogen monoxide is in both of these things. Like, what is wrong with this picture? Like, basically people are like freaking out sharing it, you know, and then turns out it's fucking water. It's just dihydrogen or like H2O. (laughs) And so people are just like, fuck this shit. Minute Maid is putting whatever the same ingredient is in bleach and their stuff. And it's because it's water. And like, (laughs) I just thought, and I remember posting, I was like, do you know what dihydrogen monoxide is? And then they were like, no but I don't want to be drinking something that's in bleach in my in my apple juice and I'm like okay well oh yeah it's it's water yeah
1: (laughs) and you're an idiot yeah you're one of those idiots my mother told me not to ignore yeah exactly (laughs) yeah um so as you've been going through life like what have been key moments where you have found your strength to you know become the powerful
0: lady that you are today Um, my family and friends have been huge influences. Uh, when I was 20, my dad passed away and that was a huge, I mean, obviously that was hard. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty suddenly and it was actually like a few days before my sister's wedding. It was really crazy. And so that brought me down to a really dark place and I ended up failing out of college and was just not a happy person and Mm -hmm. struggling as one would expect. Um, and then my mom convinced me to write like a letter of appeal, but I just felt really weird. Like I, I didn't want them to think I was like c- exploiting my dad's death to like, because I fucked up. But she's like, no, that is why like you would have real. yeah, it's real. You couldn't focus. You were, it was, you were going through something, you know, and I was separate. I was by myself at college, not mm-hmm. with my family. And so it was even harder. I was going through it by myself. And, mm-hmm. um, and i didn't have like our group of friends now i i had like one or two friends so i was very very much alone in the scenario and um but she she and then she got me and she was like he would want you to finish you know mm-hmm. like he was one of the inspirations of why you went to college in the first place so just just do it and all if they say no they say no but i mean he wouldn't want to be the reason why you didn't get to finish college so i wrote the appeal i got back in and from then on I kind of started like living my life kind of for him and Mm -hmm. he started giving me strength even though he was gone and I tried to take that that missing piece and turn it into more of a positive thing which is really hard to do especially when I was super young I was like 20 20 21 Mm 22 um and I think that that was a huge turning point in my life because it definitely made me grow up and wake up very quickly when you lose someone that's that important to you so soon. And um, and then after college, my friends became such a huge influence on my life because I had never had like a network of people that was so diverse and so loving and funny. And um, it was bizarre almost, you know, it felt surreal Mm-hmm. to have this and it just keeps growing like you said like yeah. a virus like there's just more and more people coming in and they're all and we're a very diverse group of people like yes does, when you see us all together it's surprising because everyone's just from different backgrounds like looks different talks different
1: i'm surprised we're not hit up by gap to do their next like commercial I know or
0: united colors of benetton yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah um so i i don't know i think it was just like a series of... I think really people have been what made me who I am and have mm-hmm. um, made me the powerful lady that you say I am. Yeah. And... Um, but really, though, I mean, I, I, I'm... I'm whatever the opposite of a misogynist... Or not a misogynist, a misanthrope is. That's... I for sure am because people have been such a huge... Had such a huge impact. Even people I don't know, like... Yeah. Inspirational people, musicians you know, like activists. Who are a few of them that you can think of right now? Um, as far as like journalists are concerned, um, Abby Martin, she's a journalist. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you've heard of her. She's like this crazy gnarly journalist. Like she's done a lot of like war coverage and, um, she's kind of always been, not always, but for the past, like few years at least has been a big influence as far as a, she's a female journalist and B she's like done like war correspondence. And, Mm -hmm. um, and she's funny and interesting. Um, also, Elizabeth Gilbert yeah. is—I mean, who whose hero isn't she? You know, like she's she's come up in more
1: podcasts than yeah. anybody
0: else. I and know. I, I mean, just the book Big Magic. That's it. That's it. That's mm-hmm. actually the only one I've ever read. Mm-hmm. I I, know, I didn't even read Eat Pray Love. I just um, um, my friend Sarah Sarah Lemus like yeah. was like got that book at an airport and she was like, I started reading this and I feel like you should have it. And I was like, okay. So I started, I read it and I just blew through it. And it was such a game changer, especially cause she, I mean, the whole thing is talking about creativity, Yeah, but she happens to be a writer. So I felt like it very much spoke to me in that way, you know, and it can really, it really can be applied to just anything in life, how you live your mm-hmm. life in general and how you kind of mold your creativity. But, um, I was, like, in a place, too, when I read that where I was disenchanted, feeling like I was going to quit writing, like I was over it. And she just kind of flipped that whole thing around.
1: I, I think anyone who has who has had an idea that they think of, like, so many people have this thing where, like, I thought of that. And, like, someone's selling it now. But like, people are naturally creative. And... We so often ignore it because it seems silly or nonsensical or it will make money Unrealistic. or realistic. Yeah, there's so many gross adult things we put on <laughs> top of like what we could be spending our time doing. And so I think anyone who's an adult, you've been a kid, you've had moments where you all you want to do is make stuff, forts, stories, you know, your dolls talking, whatever. Like, just go read the book because it's gonna open up something. That you probably haven't tapped into in a while.
0: Yeah, and um, I one of the biggest things too was that she talks about curiosity versus passion. Yeah, and that was important to me and to a lot of people that I've heard that I've talked to who talk about how the idea of finding your passion is such an intimidating demand. Yes, because. There goes Tuffy <laughs> He got excited. He's yeah, got passion. He's got passion. He's got big magic. Um, but yeah, like the idea of following your passion. First of all, it doesn't even talk about like finding your passion. And what if you yeah. don't have a passion? And a passion is just such a strong word. You're like, when you think of passions, you think of kind of like careers, you know, like mm-hmm. writing or painting or, you know, but it's it, it, so it kind of just it's a very intimidating How do you start? That's one of the main
1: things about Powerful Ladies is all that we talk about all these big hoo-ha words and you're like, sweet,
0: how do I start? Yeah, exactly. And I like the idea of curiosity because everyone has curiosities. Yes. And it's such a simple, natural feeling to be curious about something as simple like in the book she talks about gardening, you know, Mm -hmm. and it ended up. Ex- snowballing and then turn into a book just because she was like I like gardening I'm gonna do some more of that and then all of a sudden she wrote a book about it so yeah. and that wasn't even the intention from the beginning you know so like I feel like that has really kind of helped focus my creative path and mm-hmm. my creative approach too. like even while I'm writing you know it's about kind of things that interest me small things and I'm like maybe they'll interest somebody else too who knows
1: yeah I bet that's why you're Two Medium articles also got the the biggest feedback
0: because you just stopped putting anything around it and just wrote. Yeah, I stopped trying. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like up until then I was trying to write, trying to be a journalist. But I never really – I had so much self-doubt and so much um, just insecurities that I, I just never – I had, like, yeah, there's just all these walls around it. Mm-hmm. And so I was just trying to, like, fit into this mold that I thought would be what made me a good writer. Yeah. And then it turns out I had it all along. Yes. You know, like, from that third-grade weird horror story that I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> to, like, actually just letting it flow, you know? And that's the powerful
1: lady secret that I think I want everybody to get is what, like, the light and power is already in you. So, like, go find it. Stop stop thinking it has to look like something or do something or equal something else um you know finding your passion has been a reoccurring topic in a lot of these conversations because I've had a lot of women on who finally stopped trying so hard and you know like a lot of us like how I feel right now about powerful ladies even is that Am I passionate about powerful ladies? Like, I had a struggle just with the name for four years, so I stopped, like, doing anything. (laughs) You know, like, because I'm I'm not anti-men, right? Like, there are men and people who don't know what they identify with that will end up being on this podcast. So um, it, it just became something where I couldn't not tell the stories of women like you and who else we've had because other people needed to hear these conversations. And it's almost like I'm not even in charge of where this goes like I am just given this gift right now and being told like run as fast as you can run yeah. and then when you get there we promise that you'll figure it out but we don't know what that looks like yet but go and yeah. I'm like okay <laughs> go you know and that, like that I don't know how else to describe it because it's not like I'm back here like ha, 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 this is what we're gonna do and it's all gonna, yeah that's not <laughs> what's going on it's really just like how what would my ideal day look like it would look like talking to amazing people, because I'm curious about their story. It'd be making stuff, and it would be helping people figure out what they like doing. Sweet, I'm going to do that from now on. It was that... Done deal. It was that silly. And, you know, eventually we'll start having this make some money. But, um, so it's just like, there's a there's another great book out there about, like, passion versus skill, and how... Like, you shouldn't worry about, um, don't like, don't chase your passion, just lean into what you're good at.
0: Yeah, I like leaning in, I like that idea of leaning into what you're good at, and or leaning into your strengths, I guess. Yeah. And they don't necessarily even have to be a skill. Like, if you're no. a people person, that's not necessarily always considered a skill, but it's like leaning into something that either brings you joy or something that's just considered a strength of yours, you know?
1: Yeah, like, if it's... You don't have to think hard about something like writing an article or organizing something or doing math. Like the things that we take for granted are not easy for somebody else. Yeah. And that's your first access for finding a way to generate income for yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. we put all this pressure on, like, I need a career. And it's like, time out. You really just need to figure out how to make some money. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you'll figure out what your career is. And it's going to change, like, 80 million times. Like, even my own. When I look at, if I list all the jobs I've done, you're like, who is this schizophrenic person? I know. That's (laughs) how I feel,
0: too. (laughs) Totally. And I I don't like that that's considered like a bad trait when like you're in the kind of professional world. They're like, oh, you know, you don't want to make it like too crazy and you don't want to have show too many jobs and you don't want to do this and you don't want to do that because you want to look like you have like a streamlined process and all this that's stuff. All and I'm like, but bullshit. that's I know. And I'm like, but that's not my, my, my life is. I don't no. know what to tell you. That's just my resume. That's just how it is. I don't yeah. know.
1: People people gave me shit for in the beginning because the first two companies I worked at in footwear and apparel, I was there for like a year, year and a half. And they'd be like, "Why'd you jump around so quickly?" I'm like, "Cause I was making fucking thirty thousand dollars. Like, I had to go somewhere else. Otherwise, I was going to either go into debt or starve." Yeah. So that's why I left. Yeah. And then someone asked me to move to Europe. I was like, "Uh, yeah." Obviously. So it's like you moving around. It's not a sign of, of I don't know, like it's not disloyal. It's you can't. Play your – you can't live your life on somebody else's terms. No,
0: exactly. You know, if you find a better opportunity, you fucking take it. Yeah. I'm not just going to be like, oh, on my resume, it only says that I've been here six months, and I don't really want to have other employers, even though I have this really awesome job lined up, think that I'm disloyal. No. It doesn't work that way. But that's how people see it, which is what's unfortunate.
1: You don't stay in a relationship so that you get points for how long you've been in it.
0: What's (laughs) the difference? For the next one. Yeah. So the next boyfriend doesn't think you're disloyal. Right. Because you didn't put in enough time in the last one. Yeah. That'd be amazing
1: if that's what people were doing. I'm so glad we're not. I I hope
0: nobody is. I know. I hope nobody is, but you never know.
1: Well, we ask everybody on the podcast, where do you put yourself on the Powerful Lady scale? Zero being average human. Ten being super awesome Wonder Woman powerful lady. Where do you put yourself today? Where do you put yourself on average?
0: Uh, I think I'm a solid eight. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like hopefully in the future I'll be a, at a at a at a ten. yeah, but i'm I'm not quite there yet. but I'm trying. Perfect
1: um what advice would you have for women who are interested in in journalism in writing and finding their own creative path
0: definitely don't quit your day job um i think that i mean this is another big magic thing too was that i understand that you want to sustain yourself by your passions and you want to sustain yourself especially if you want to be a journalist that dream job is like a staff writer somewhere or, mm-hmm. you know, being editor in chief somewhere or even an associate editor or something like that and having like that solid job. And that that's possible. I'm not saying that that dream can't come true, but it's, it's very difficult. And I mean, there's like Pulitzer prize winning writers that are getting laid off and fired. And, and just because there's just not enough money to go around and not enough editorial space and not enough subscribers and readers. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the world always needs more journalists. I feel Uh, journalists are an essential part of communication, the way that we receive and share stories. And as long as there's people writing, then there's people learning. And, you know, I I just think it's important to try not to put your entire life on the line of your journalism. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've been trying to change is that um, I used to sustain myself on it and then I couldn't anymore. Yep. And when I couldn't anymore, I felt like that meant I had failed, you know, and I, cause I was still writing just not as much and I couldn't sustain myself on it. And I felt like as that I had to get a second job and, you know, I was like working at dispensaries and stuff like that. And I felt like, fuck, I'm not a writer anymore. Now I'm just a bud tender, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I was still a writer. I was still writing just because, just because I wasn't working that as my main job, like journalism wasn't like my main squeeze doesn't necessarily mean I'm not still a writer or a journalist. So I think it's important to just try not to put too much pressure mm-hmm. on your creativity and your writing and your journalism, because it will definitely disenchant you if you do it that way. Cause that's what happened to me. I put yep. too much pressure on my writing, too much pressure on my creativity. I like basically was like abusive to my creativity and told my creativity that it had to provide for me Mm -hmm. and that it had to pay my bills and that it had to take care of me. And then if it didn't, I wasn't going to leave it behind and never talk to it again, you know? And that's not fair. And that's not happy either. No (laughs) no one wants to go through that, especially with anything like art, you know, any kind of art or creative industry. It's, if you put too much pressure on it, you're going to end up burnt out and disenchanted and Mm -hmm. maybe even quit, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think there's a balance between... Being driven and pushing yourself further and taking the time out of your day to make and foster and nurture this skill or talent that you have without putting so much pressure on it to provide for you. So, yep. I guess that's just the main advice is just don't to put too much pressure on your journalism. You can still be a journalist and have a second job that doesn't, you know, demean who you are or change the fact that you're a journalist or a writer, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, what? how many people have had Uber drivers who are like, Oh, well, like, what's up? What do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a writer. And they're like, oh, sick, me too. And I'm like, oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can be an Uber driver and you can still call yourself a writer, you know? They're not going to go around saying they're an Uber driver. No. When they ask what they do. Right. Oh, I'm an Uber driver, professional. Yeah. (laughs) I ride on the side. No big deal. That'd be amazing. (laughs) Okay, so as
1: we're wrapping things up, um, what do you do – I have, like, two more questions. What do you do to stay at operating at your best and to feel balanced and, like, you're ready to take on the day?
0: I think I'm still trying to figure that out, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just feel like I've tried different things, like meditation I've tried, but um, – harder than it sounds some people are like oh it's so easy what do you mean meditation is like the easiest thing you just sit there and i'm like no No. it's not the easiest thing my brain is going a mile a minute it's so hard to quiet it and i can i mean i'm getting better at it but that's that's not like my thing really Mm -hmm. i want to get better at it but i think exercise hiking outdoors are kind of what reset me a lot Mm -hmm. um i just don't have a whole lot of time to do those things yeah uh there's like things that i want to be my like things that help me stay at like my peak potential, but I just can't really pull them off with Mm -hmm. work, you know, like I'm definitely living the most habitual life, you know, working the nine to five, come home, cook dinner, watch Netflix, like pretty basic stuff, you know, and it does kind of just help me chill. But I mean, there are things that I wish I was doing more of, you know, Mm -hmm. like I go to the rock climbing gym and I wish I would go more, but it's just so hard to stay motivated and not be tired every day. And yeah, get up and go rock climbing. Like it's not exactly like the easiest activity, but definitely exercise um, outdoor activities. Like I'm mm-hmm. definitely, I'm a big outdoor nut, you yeah. know, like I got lots of gear, camping gear. And and that's such, that's a huge part of our group of friends too, is camping yeah. is one of our biggest like binding factors. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, again, that's something I don't do as much as I would like to, but yeah. every time I do, it definitely helps me reset. And I always feel so much better, so much more driven and Mm -hmm. focused after I come back from like these camping trips. Yep. Um, But that's definitely something I'm still heavily trying to figure out and work on like what the best process is. And my life is also finally stabilizing a little bit. Like I said, last year with all the festivals, it was so hard to find anything that would keep me at peak focus. You know, Mm -hmm. it was, it, it comes and it also, as far as writing, like sometimes it's like squeezing the words out like a freaking wringing out a towel and I'm just yeah. getting drops of yeah. inspiration but sometimes it just passes through me so fast I can barely keep up with it like my fingers can't type as fast as my brain is like yep producing the sentences so I I, I would like to say that I have like some end-all be-all process that you know kind of keeps me at peak peak form but I'm still trying to figure that out but and I think it
1: changes based on whatever season or phase of life you're in. Big time. Like, whatever worked for you last year is not going to work now. Like, And I think that's one of the, the big takeaways I want everyone listening to get is it's not that you do all this work and then you get to stop and take a break and not keep figuring things out. Like, sure, like you don't need to make it more stuff to do. But... This game that we're playing of living, like if you're really playing the game to like live your most awesome life, you, the curiosity can't stop, the learning can't stop, the seeing new things, like all that should be fun, for sure. And and you're going to evolve. Like there's just no other way about it. Um, what you look, what how you look, where you live, what you what you want to eat, who you're hanging out with, like it keeps changing, even if slightly. So whatever worked before may not work now, and that's okay and it's awesome because it means you have an opportunity to find something else out.
0: Yeah, it keeps you on your toes too, it keeps yeah. you aware. And it probably probably helps in the evolution process also. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not it's trying to kind of I mean complacency is something that people are feel like constantly battling. We are creatures of habit, you know, like it is easy to get into that go to work, come home, cook dinner, watch Netflix. It's so easy to fall into that. But at the same yeah. time, it's also kind of something that I'm like, if I'm this is what I want to do. This is what my body and my brain needs right now. I yeah. mean, I don't wouldn't say it necessarily needs Netflix, but it's just the idea of just kind of like rest and just kind of zoning out and yeah. not talking to anybody or socializing yeah. or kind of being hermity in mm-hmm. a way. And I feel like we've actually had a winter Yes. For the first time in a long time. And I think that's, it's been a very like introspective time for me and, you know, like dealing with troubles at work and trying to kind of just mellow out a mm-hmm. whole lot more and just focus on being okay.
1: Yeah. Everyone that we've talked to, you know, Jordan made this great catchphrase that 2019, this should be called 2019 because nice. you're really capturing like what you want to do and how you want to do it and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Versus where I feel like 2018 was so many people I talked to were just running as fast as they could and like giving sacrificing whatever their they would have previously said were a personal standard, not in like giving up your integrity, but giving up balance and giving up this and, you know, and not that it was a bad year for everybody either. Like there was so much fun that happened. But when I look back at like, was it a balanced year? Did I feel like my personal goals got forwarded? Yes, because things get forwarded always, but not in the in the monumental way that I feel like more people are getting a hold of this year.
3: Yeah, hopefully.
1: Yeah. Any big quotes or messages that you want to give out to the people listening? Hmm. Like, do you have a quote you live by or a message that you tell yourself when you need a pep talk?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things I tell me, I tell myself a lot um when I feel down is just it's okay (laughs) yeah and it sounds simple but you know I can my brain tends to take off on these anxiety spirals sometimes and you know you hear people say that all the time and you're like it's not okay (laughs) but really it is okay you know Mm -hmm. like I have a roof over my head I have food in my stomach I'm not exactly where I want to be but it's okay for now and hopefully I'll move forward and become a tier 10 powerful lady in the yeah. next few years <laughs> yeah but I don't know I, I I try to like I actually recently I'm not a religious person but I actually recently started praying before bed and mm-hmm. I've never been a prayer and one of my biggest things um one of one of the hardest anxiety moments I have is right before bed like when I'm laying in bed trying to go to sleep and my brain is just going off yeah and mm-hmm. about shit that doesn't even matter like my brain will just go off on these tangents and i freak out about something so stupid that the next day i was like why was i freaking out about that but you mm-hmm. you just like get completely caught up in the wave yeah and so i was trying all these different breathing exercises and like ca- literally counting sheep i tried the, I, I don't ever get that that never really worked for me i don't know me neither uh, so yeah counting sheep think didn't work but I actually started praying, and it was weird because I don't even know why that came into my head. But I was like, maybe I'll give it a try. People are always talking about prayer and Mm -hmm. whatever—the power of prayer. And I don't know. I just and I started praying for my family members. Like I would say every single one of their names, like my cousins, my aunts, my uncle, my mom, my sister, my dad, and then like naming all of my friends, every single one of my friends. I was naming cultures and countries and celebrities and people that are going through hard times and hardships, and Mm -hmm. and like I really really helped actually you know and it wasn't even that I was praying to any particular deity or something I was just praying for you know good health and happiness to these people in Mm -hmm. my life and just I think just listing their names in my head like going through every single one of their names and picturing their faces like was a very had a very soothing calming effect because these are all people I care about and that love you yeah and that love me and Mm -hmm. I felt like kind of like they were there and yeah so I guess I believe in the power of prayer now I'm kind of crazy
1: well and I you know one of the things that has brought me closer to spirituality is separating the human layers of religion to what it actually initially stood for and you know concepts like the holy spirit like to me like the universe I get that And then when I realized that the Holy Spirit was just that same thing people called the universe and like what you feel at like a really great yoga class, I was like, oh, okay, I get that. Yes. Holy Spirit, you're welcome. Welcome back. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome back. (laughs) And so I, I think that for whatever all religions out there, you look at the religion based on the mistakes and the nonsense that humans have applied to it and used it as a tool to make others less than. When I haven't found a religion, when you go back to the core, that was ever about separating.
3: Yeah, definitely.
1: And so I think whoever you're talking to when you are praying, even if it's your dad,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like, it's the right way to do it.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: It's it's going back to that source and that we're all connected. And, you know, I really do believe that there are people listening— who you know aren't here anymore that that love us like there's no way that there have been moments in my life when there's been a second of intuition or a like I know that there have been thoughts in my head that weren't mine yeah and like like how why would we ignore that when every other uh culture that is closer to like you know native cultures as we refer to them which might even be insulting at you know at this level but I apologize if anyone got insulted for that, but there's something about being grounded in connection and knowing, um, being wiser about our spiritual, emotional, mental, physical relationships with each other, the past and present, and the planet that we're on. So um, I don't know why that's become a bad thing in Western culture.
0: Yeah, I don't either. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it is.
1: Any other last shares you want to give to the the
0: people Uh um I guess I kind of want to talk about my book a little bit. Yes, please. Um So, I've had this concept kind of together for the past 7 years, but because my dad passed away, it's about my dad. Um mm-hmm. it's been kind of more of a difficult thing and it's been kind of shelved cuz I wasn't sure if I was ready for it. But um I wrote this I'm writing this book. I have Um, the first, like, 20 pages of the manuscript that I've been sending out to literary agents. But it's essentially based on this interview that my dad did with one of my friends in high school about his experience in the Hitler Youth. Mm -hmm. And um, when he passed away, my friend's parents brought me a copy of it on a CD, and I had totally forgotten it even existed. Like, at his funeral, it was originally one of those tiny little recording tapes, and they transferred it into like a CD file so I was able to actually like upload it onto my computer and now it's on SoundCloud. So um the story is crazy. Like the things that he talks about, you know, like these are firsthand experiences about the World War ii and the Hitler youth. I mean, he talks about how his my grandmother was friends with Ava Brown and how he would see Hitler across the street all the time because he was getting his photo taken at the photographer who lived across the street and Mm -hmm. stories about how he was recruited into the Hitler youth. So I'm basically using that as the foundation of the story, pulling actually direct quotes. So it's, it's interesting because I've been wanting to write this book, but the interview gave me the actual concrete details that I needed to really make this thing sing, you know, and the fact that I can use direct quotes from his mouth and not just paraphrasing or, My kind of like piece together memories of the stories he told me, I have this actual factual account that I can put together and expand into a book. So right now, um, that's what I've been working on, but the process is really difficult. I mean, I've never written a book before it's it's not actually the writing process it's the trying to get published process Yeah, the writing is the easy part for me at least because it's just all there I have a whole outline I'm just kind of letting it flow and it's been probably one of the best writing experiences I've had in a long time it feels very freeing and very like natural like Mm -hmm. I haven't felt writing has been so natural in so long and Um, I just feel connected to him again, too, you know, talking to him like or hearing his voice talking on the recording, and I've been listening to it kind of a lot, which it used to be I couldn't even listen to it. It was too hard to listen to, you know. Mm -hmm. But now I'm at a point where I have this goal and this um, kind of drive to bring this story out for people to hear, and it makes me feel 100% reconnected to him again. So How awesome. For now – I'm trying to get through the process of publishing and um, I've asked a few people who have written books and there's two ways of publishing. It's like the traditional way, going through a literary agent and then maybe trying to get one through like the big five um, publishers. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of people who are saying self-publishing, but I think I'm going to try to go to the traditional route for my first one because the self-publishing just sounds... I I just feel so lost and you have to basically just be really motivated and you have to pay for everything you Mm -hmm. know and you could possibly get it out on you know the kindle editions or audiobooks but i think the traditional is the way to go for me now so i'm just at least try it right yeah i mean i'm trying those first steps and i mean that might be my only option but i've also been hearing a lot of people just say be patient just Mm -hmm. keep doing it and because, I mean, there's a lot of shitty books out there. So many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> you know, that get published by the big five even sometimes. So it's like. I've returned books on Audible because I couldn't even listen yeah, to it. Yeah, I couldn't even get through it. I mm-hmm. have done the same thing. They have that great listen guarantee or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of shitty books that get published all the time. And so hopefully mine won't be one of those shitty books. But I'm just, it motivates me that I'm like, well, if, I mean, if those books can make it out there, someone will, someone will like the story. So that's that's been my kind of main concern, that and the... Um, your new
1: platform? Platform, yeah. No, I, you have such exciting stuff happening this year. Yeah. And like we were talking before, like I'm so excited to see you move into a space where you're creating things that like really touch you in a place that you maybe haven't been accessing in a while. Especially yeah. with the story with your dad, but also... You know, when you create something on your own, it's like this scary vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm so excited that we can use the Powerful Ladies platform to celebrate you and promote that. And I can't wait for your book to be available for people to read. Like, I want to read it. Um, and also to use the platform that you and Miles are creating. Because I don't think there's, there's, a, there's not enough places to go to find things anymore, I feel. Like, there's so much... Nonsense that yeah. you see before you actually get to real things. So, to have a platform where you can learn about artists and what's happening and why people care about it and um, what matters, I think will be really amazing.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that happened recently that was kind of a catalyst for us to really jumpstart this thing was the, there's not really a whole lot of like festival websites. And when I do pitch these festival stories to like bigger publications, mm-hmm. a lot of I hear kind of the same responses like, because I like – I've kind of fallen in love with the smaller boutique festivals, you know, yeah. like Desert Hearts in San Diego, mm-hmm. Genius Loki in Mexico, like these very small curated events where it's not such a schlep. Yeah. Like lightning in a bottle. You don't have to, like, walk a mile back to your campgrounds every time you want to just go get a beer. mm mm-hmm. um, So I've really fallen in love with those and the community that comes with them. And I find that when I pitch stories about these people – and they deserve to have media attention. Yes. You know, when I – when I pitch these stories to bigger publications um, I just don't even hear back from them. Or if I do, they say, Oh, it doesn't have enough global appeal. Oh, it's too small. You know, like this, how many people go to this festival? I've never heard of it. I don't want to write about it. You know, we don't have space for that kind of a thing. So I want to create something because the festival community runs deep and I want to create something where they are celebrated, these small festivals and the big ones, you know, all Mm -hmm. of them. And so I think, when there was one website and that was called Everfest i don't know if you remember that was mm-hmm. one of the aforementioned websites that i wrote for that went down but they were actually who paid me the best out of all like even like the bigger publications they paid me a solid amount more so and they were just this like small festival website and yeah. it used to be fest300 i don't know if you remember them but it was fest300 and then everfest and then They all of a sudden just told – I just got this email saying – from my editor saying, oh, we all just like got laid off basically because um, they're not going to be a – they're not going to create content anymore. They're just going to be like a ticket platform or something like that. She's like, all of your work will still be on there. So it's going to still live on the space. So you have – like for the content, they're just not going to make anything new. So when that happened, Miles and I were like, I think this is our chance because – I mean, there's tons of – Small platforms that I'm not saying that that was the only festival platform, but that was kind of like the one that was on top that most people knew about, you know, there's Mm -hmm. MixMag talks about festivals, but like, again, they're based in a lot of their stuff is based in the UK. They have, they have like an American branch, but at the same time I've pitched stuff to them where they're like, ah, that doesn't, you know, really fit. It's too small. And it's not a festival magazine by any means. It's yeah. an electronic music magazine that will sometimes talk about electronic music festivals. So
1: I think just breaking through on the the idea that something's too small to share. Yeah. Like, isn't that the great stuff you want to share? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that's, that's one of the things that's been bothering me about this is, like, I have all these amazing stories and these amazing people that are these grassroots movements, you know, like mm-hmm. – literally building a festival out of pocket and that's that's a fucking amazing story you know that's a way cooler story than like golden voice putting together coachella or insomniac building you know and they all started from that that's another thing is like they all started from those small grassroots movements Mm -hmm. especially insomniac i mean that was just a party in the desert for the longest time and now look at it you know Mm -hmm. so i definitely want to give uh credit to these these people, and a lot of them are my friends too, you know, so it's kind of a win-win, like I want to shout out to my friends and also, you know, give their festival a little bit of media. So that's hopefully something that, and we just have such a huge community of photographers, writers, dancers, musicians, organizers, yeah, DJs, like festival producers, Mm -hmm. you know, that I feel like would totally be down. I feel like all of our years of work of going to these festivals and making these connections of all kind of, Added up to this platform, it's, you know.
1: Yep, exactly where Powerful Ladies is at right now. Yeah. It took this long to finally allow it to become the next phase. Yeah, It's mm-hmm.
0: awesome. I'm so happy you're doing it.
1: No, and I'm happy that you're doing. It's like we're doing similar things, but for different niche yep, groups. Exactly. So it's perfect. um I'm also so excited that you're going to be a contributor on Powerful Ladies. Yes. And, I can't wait for it to be an outlet for people to hear your voice and what you care about and what's going on in the world because, um, you know, whether it's a strict journalistic article or it's really your perspective, um, I can't imagine people hearing this episode and not wanting to hear what you think about it. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited too. Well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing episode and... Yeah, I'm just so happy you're here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. I wish we had more champagne, though. <laughs> next time, next time, time we're bringing more. Yeah, definitely.
1: <laughs> for all of you listening who want to be a writer, who want to find ways to overlap all of your passions and make an income, Morena is the woman to reach out to. Since the recording of our conversation, her persistence has paid off and she started freelancing for Vice. She's also working on her book with the manuscript scheduled to be released in 2020. I'm inspired by her equally focused and free spirit, as well as her balance between being confident in who she is and still discovering all of her own layers. To follow, support, and connect with Morena, you can visit her website, morenadue.com, follow her on Instagram at shatzi underscore mo, S-C-H-A-T-Z-I underscore M-O, Follow her on LinkedIn, Morena-Due, and email her, MorenaDue at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing here at Powerful Ladies, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Leave a review on any of these platforms. Share the show with all the powerful ladies and gentlemen in your life. Join our Patreon account. Check out the website, thepowerfulladies.com. To hear more inspiring stories, get practical tools to be your most powerful, get 15% off your first order in the Powerful Ladies shop, or donate to the Powerful Ladies One Day of Giving campaign. And of course, follow us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. For show notes, and to get the links to the books, podcasts, and people we talk about, go to thepowerfulladies.com. I'd like to thank our producer, composer, and audio engineer, Jordan Duffy. She's one of the first female audio engineers in the podcasting world, if not the first and she also happens to be the best. We're very lucky to have her. She's a powerful lady in her own right. In addition to taking over the podcasting world, she's a singer songwriter working on her next album and she's one of my sisters. So it's amazing to be creating this with her and I'm so thankful that she finds time in her crazy busy schedule to make this happen. It's a testament to her belief in what we're creating through Powerful Ladies and I'm honored that she shares my vision. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.